There's a great reckoning taking place in America. Millions of people, once financially successful, are falling over the cliff into poverty, extreme poverty. Some point scapegoating fingers, others figure it out. I would describe myself as someone who has had a career choice privilege. I have Harvard MBA, I have a master's in international studies from John Hopkins, I've worked at the World Bank, I've been an entrepreneur, I've been a C-suite executive, I've had that kind of career. That post-2009 began to slow down, that, that momentum that I was accustomed to slowed down. Coming up on the next Janice Adams Show, Faking Normal, a gut check of a book by our guest, Elizabeth White. Trying to make it real compared to what? First, the news. In 2008, with the economic crash, millions of Americans who once thought themselves financially secure quickly plummeted over the cliff into poverty, extreme poverty. Now, Elizabeth White, one among the far too many, tells the story in Faking Normal, a book about her life and that of others who find themselves in the same predicament. She's telling uncomfortable truths and administering healing prescriptions for societal change. To begin, what is Faking Normal? Faking Normal is when you are pretending to the world that you are doing better than you're actually doing. And you're going to some lengths to hide the financial struggle that you're facing from friends and even family. So where did you come from when you found yourself having to fake normal? I would describe myself as someone who has had a career choice privilege and uh, certainly periods of significant income. I have a Harvard MBA, I have a master's in international studies from John Hopkins, I've worked at the World Bank, I've been an entrepreneur, I've been a C-suite executive, I've had that kind of career. That um, post-2009 began to slow down, that, that momentum that I was accustomed to slowed down. And I was not the only one in my circle. There were a number of professional women who uh, had been doing well until they weren't. And uh, those among them who were closest to me, we started to see that in other circumstances we were pretending. In a restaurant, we might only order hors d'oeuvres and feign that we were not hungry, or we would uh, say that we had eaten before, because we were in a setting where sometimes to get the next job, you need to be able to socialize, you need to be, uh, if you go to a networking event and they wanna stop afterwards for a bite to eat, that's just kind of part of traditionally how we had found work. And you would see that you just couldn't hang like that. You were accustomed to living a certain way. You were, uh, in the past, always on somebody's short list if you were between an assignment. And now you are on nobody's short list. Your phone wasn't ringing anymore. And um, you would get a job, get a consulting assignment, and you'd be so in the hole that even though it may even have been a good one, you're digging out from the uh, six months that you didn't have something before. So this sort of, I call it, uh, you eat what you kill. It's feast or famine in this what we call sharing economy. And it just got harder and harder to put together. And as you look out onto the horizon, uh, I'm 63. This started to happen to me in my mid-50s. Uh, uh, and uh, with what they now call the longevity bonus, uh, we're going to live till, <laughs> uh, you know, we're in our 80s. And when I'm talking to friends of mine, we are concerned that this is a very long time to try to put the pieces together. Now, as yeah. you speak 
about this. I mean, I'm hearing a couple of things. One is that it really does seem to be more of an upper middle class phenomenon. I'm hearing that. So that I'm, but at the same point, I would ask, does it also apply, maybe not on the same level, but to other people who have been faking normal because maybe they were the paycheck to paycheck just getting by and now they can't even do that? I think what has happened is that um, for the first time, many people who in the past could not see a sequence of events where they would ever hit rock bottom now can see it. And I mean beyond just big things like job loss or medical diagnosis. There are now a number of people in the country who if there is a major uh, car repair, if there is uh, the heat pump goes out or the water heater goes out, they are now standing at the abyss. And this is, so when you see a statistic, one that uh, Neil Gabler in the Atlantic yes. piece uh, about a year ago, yes. when he uh, talked about 47% of Americans can't put together um, $400 for an emergency, he's not just talking about people who have modest incomes. He himself is in the gig economy feast or famine, and it is, uh, he may even have the asset of a house. I have a house. It is the cash flow that becomes, uh, you know, the the major constraint. And you're trying to hold on to your house because you know you've got 25 years uh, to live, and that's the asset that you think, you know, at least will uh, contribute uh, to helping you to support yourself. There are so many interesting moving pieces almost to this. The first thing is your awareness. What is the pivotal moment, <laughs> you know, the defining incident that tells you you have now crossed over to this side, that moment of awareness? What was it for you? For me, it was when I began to have uh, real trouble putting the money together for my mortgage. Uh, you know, that had not been a problem in the, in the past. And looking out, it's sort of, you have a slow dawning that hundreds of job applications later, that there is a good chance you are not going to get a nine to five job again. Mm -hmm. And if you do get one, it's going to be uh, significantly less than what you're used to making. And so people, you know, you sort of built a uh, lifestyle that, uh, and we all do it, you know, wherever you are on the spectrum, um, that, you know, accommodates your income. I had savings. I'm not someone who did not have savings. I had uh, significant savings. I also, at one point, started a business. I was going and to ask you about that. I mean, it's great that you're saying, making these details, because it's almost like people, the way they shun someone with an illness, and or someone who's had something horrific happen, happen to them, like... Uh, someone was attacked or something, and they always want to say, well, if you had only done such and such, if you had only done something else, or it's that young woman she had on the skirt that was too short and the blouse was, all of that they want to put in to it. And what it really is, is to some extent, a way of trying to shake it away from themselves saying, oh, I never would have done that. So I'm okay. And here you are describing a person of education who educationally has done everything this society has told you you should do, right? And I would say, even with a business, a business is, if your business is successful, then you're a genius. If exactly. you have a business that ultimately is not successful, then there's, why did you do that? Why didn't you know that this business was not going to be successful? Why did you pick that industry? My reason for 
coming out and talking about this is that we have on our hands a national crisis. The gap between what Americans have saved and what we will need to retire is $7.7 trillion. It's a really big number. Take the details of my personal situation. I have the background where I can look at the data. So when I started to look at what was happening in my circle, and I wrote a blog post that just described uh, it was a composite piece describing my situation and friends that I knew. And it got 11,000 likes and 1,000 comments in a period of three days. And those are just the people who saw it and said, let me forward it or let me post a link. There were others who just probably looked at that link in shock and said, oh, my goodness. People started writing me and telling me what happened. And it was the full range from people who were like me to people who had done better than me to people who had had more modest incomes but were landing in the same place. So, I, I, so I'm hearing individual stories. I, uh, you know, in my career, I've looked at a lot of data. I started looking at the data and I saw that between 55 and 64, 29% of those households have not saved a dime. I started to see that the median uh, retirement savings for people in that same age uh, uh, cohort was like $103,000, $104,000. The annuity on that, something like $300 a month. This is a lot of people. And it's not being talked about in a way that I think its urgency requires. I think we're very soon, it's happening already, are going to see some older adults in some very, very dire situations. And I say to people, even if this is not happening to you, my best friend, for example, not happening to her. She's doing very well. But she has a sister who's 55 who lost her job and lost her house and is now living with her in her uh, in her basement and with her niece. So uh, the reason that I'm talking about it and I wanted to tell uh, personal things about my story and um, put this in the public as something we should be discussing is because it is being discussed privately, but the shame and people being in the shadows meaning, means that the kind of comprehensive uh, thinking, the creative thinking, the you know sort of out of the building thinking that a problem of this magnitude requires is not happening. Uh, the people who are in this field, who deal with aging, they already know this. But others of us who are actually experiencing it need to raise our hands with our legislatures, uh, with product developers, with building developers, etc., so that we have um, more of a solution, particularly on the housing side, which mm -hmm. is uh, one of the things I look at in the book. I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned the year 2009, which of course was a pivotal year. It was the year before that the crash took place. And people, regardless of, you know, where they were, where they were in, uh, across the board financially, but also where they were geographically, where they were age-wise, every possible demographic definition across the board, that crash affected them. You said this happened in 2009. So did you survive the crash essentially unscathed and then this happened? So what happened was at that point, I was not doing my business anymore and I would get contracts and I was good at them and uh, had two main ones and then I would periodically do other things. And when the crash happened, 
it happened to businesses as well. So they began to retrench and they began to let go. And the first sort of tier of layoffs were going to be contractors. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have tenure at these points, even though I had been there. Uh, one of them, I had been there for seven years. It was a six month assignment and it had gone on and on, been renewed many times. It went for seven years. And then in a matter of two months, uh, it was over. To be clear, in terms of your career trajectory, you had wonderful assignments. I worked at the World Bank in a regular nine to five, uh, you know, uh, situation. Mm -hmm. I left the bank to start the business. And then I closed the business and started doing contract work. And I was at that point getting uh, very good contracts or I'd get even one that was supposed to be short and I would perform and they would extend it and it would go on for years. Okay. So so even though it wasn't nine to five, it was steady income. It was steady. In that business, may I ask about how old you were when you decided to start that business? I was in my sort of early to mid 40s. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting because I know among friends of mine, the push out age for many African Americans, uh, high performing African Americans, high performing African American women and women of color across the board, has been that period in your 40s. So, technically, the idea of starting a business was a good idea at that point because it was that life transition where you could take control, it seems, of your own destiny by making that choice. Is that? That's exactly where I stood with it. I was passionate about it. Uh, I had been affirmed by um, many people that this was a really good idea. I had a network. Uh, and, you know, no one starts a business uh, thinking that it's not going to be ultimately successful. And it actually, it went on for a number of years. I was the national uh, small retailer for the uh, National Retail Trade Association, which is the largest retail trade association in the country. You know, this was quite an honor to get that. I had stores uh, in Macy's at Herald Square. I had stores at John Wanamaker. So um, uh, it it went well until it didn't. You know, I was dealing with a lot of artisan uh, producers who could not do the kind of volume that I needed to um, uh, scale. You know, issues, as many entrepreneurs have, trying to raise, you know, enough money, raised money for sure, but not uh, enough to kind of take it to the next level. Learned a lot about myself in terms of retail. Retail has to kind of be in your blood. I realized that uh, it was not as much in mine as, you know, I had initially thought. Mm -hmm. And so pivoted out of that still because I was working uh, with a lot of uh, African artisan producers, loved that part of it. And in fact, one of my consulting assignments was to help them on the Africa side to sell to Macy's and Target. So instead of me being the retailer, trying to bring in these goods and sell them myself, I started working with an organization that helped them to um, produce goods in Africa and then sell to the U.S. So and that was, was what I really liked. So not only were you creating a, an as an entrepreneur working on a business for yourself, but you were also creating value and wealth for others. You were sharing that wealth. Definitely. Our guest is Elizabeth White, author of Faking Normal. When we come back, what changes of mindset can help the transition from past life to new normal, from where you were to where you think you are now, and where you may be for some time to come? More on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Oh, it really isn't easy 
just to let the good times roll. Everything is measured at a cost. Everybody living pays their share of dues. And sometimes what you think you got, you lost. We're back with our guest, Elizabeth White, and she is the author of the new book, Faking Normal. Elizabeth, as we are taping this, on my phone has just come a message that the world has just lost the actress, Mary Tyler Moore. And as I heard that, the image of her just came into my mind, so appropriate to this conversation of that perky young girl in in television, excited about her job, and all of the issues, though, that that show, in a very clear-eyed way, through comedy, brought up about young women in the workplace, wage disparity, job disparity. And did she ever think that maybe one day she, too, would be faking normal. What comes to mind for you, Elizabeth? I think one thing that comes to mind, her tremendous contribution, I must uh, say that. The second thing that comes to mind is that I don't think we boomers really thought we were going to get old. Not really. We just always thought there was sort of another hill to go over. That if something, plan A didn't work, there would always be plan B. We thought that we always had time. And what you realize at some point is you don't have time. That something going off the grid, something going awry, that your time to put it together even your energy to put it together is not there. You don't have that horizon that you had as a young person. I think that's the, you know, sort of one of the big shifts for many boomers. And when I say don't have time, we don't have time as young people. We're going to live into our 80s, but the person that we are now what were our stamina at this point? And it's not that we don't have a lot to contribute. It's not that we don't, you know, I meet people of all kinds of levels of vitality and still curious and interested in things. But the awareness that you have less time ahead of you than you do behind you, I think is very striking at this point. It, it is. But at the same point, going back to the Mary Tyler Moore example, going back to your own extraordinary life and career experience, there are systemic conversations that need to be had. One of the wonderful things about the Mary Tyler Moore show is that they really did talk about things in comedic vein, but they did raise issues of wage disparity, of gender disparity in terms of what jobs women could have, in terms of where she could even live as a single young woman and and whether or not she could afford to have her own apartment, some of the expectations. And that kind of Situation comedy, referencing the situation, um, crisis and tragedy that young women were living through at that point, it is having repercussions when we talk about this baby boomer age and, and the generation right after, because let's face it, it's only with President Obama's first months in office that that Lily Ledbetter Act finally got signed dealing with 
horrendous examples of wage disparity uh, for, for women. And then, as we know, it was even more egregious when you add in the issues of, of race and ethnicity. So in your work, how are you seeing that playing out in some of the people that you are talking to who are faking normal at this point? At the macro level, I mean, we've all heard uh, the you know uh, statistics on the wage gap, and we all also now know that that wage gap is you know attributable to more than just sort of issues of discrimination. It's women clustered in the bottom of the um, you know sort of wage scale. It's men being on the job longer, and all of that. But taking all of that into account, when you look at lifetime earning losses for African and African American and Latino women, the numbers are big. It's uh, for African American women, it's uh, eight hundred and seventy-seven thousand four hundred and eighty dollars. So we're approaching a million dollars, and for Latino women, it is a million dollars. So to be clear, what you're saying is that the loss of income over their career lifespan. That's the number. Right. So over a 40-year career, okay, that is the number. The average number is $430,480. But for Latina and Black women, it's more than twice that. Then you have to add in the shortfall from being caregivers. So we're in and out of the uh, workforce, taking care of different family members. That's another shortfall of $304,000. And then there are hundreds of thousands more for taking care of children. So when you add all of that up, these numbers are uh, significant and they impact what women get in social security and they impact what women can uh, save. So looking here, it says uh, a recent study by the National Institute on Retirement on Women's Financial Futures found that women are 80% more likely than men to be impoverished at 65 and older. The possibility of being old and poor in America as a woman is a starker reality, a, a greater possibility of that happening than it is for men. And it's not just those women. All of us, from one end of the income spectrum to the other, because of sort of some of these big shifts in work, are vulnerable. And uh, one of the things that I want my book to do is just to start this conversation. Where are all these people going to live? Where are all these women going to live? I want to unpack something that you, uh, points that you just made. You gave these numbers, these huge numbers, really, in terms of not a group of women, but one average woman losing for different life circumstance reasons over a million dollars in income across her 40-year career. What is the average salary that that's based on? It says, according to the latest data from the U.S. Census Bureau, the typical woman working a full-time year-round job earned 80 cents for every $1 that a man earned in 2015. Asian American women earned 90 cents on the dollar, African-American women earned 64 cents on the dollar, and Hispanic and Latino women earned 54 cents on the dollar. And white women? Oh, it says the typical woman working full time. That is the average American woman, period. And then you have some of these breakouts by race that qualify the number, but it goes from 90 cents to for the Asian woman to 64 cents for the Latino uh, the Latina woman is 54 cents. 50, uh, worse still, 54 cents. Right. And so then that brings the average into the 80. You know, I, I think about those kinds of numbers. And just to inject one personal note, I remember when I, I was Saks Fifth Avenue's first African-American executive trainee. 
that was a plum job, retail job, and Saks Fifth Avenue, Macy's, Bloomingdale's were the three stores that had these major executive trainee positions, which would then quickly escalate you up the ladder in terms of the retail industry. And for this executive trainee position, finally someone pulled me aside to tell me the truth. And she told me, you know, I want you to understand that there are five tiers for this same job of executive trainee. And it's important that it we understand that it's the executive trainee because therefore the very fact that you're a trainee means that nobody has a whole lot of experience. So you can't say that the difference is there. But the, the five tiers were male married, male single, female single, female married, and then me as the only black person. Mm. And whenever I hear these statistics, that's what I think of. That is just one woman's experience, but it is that egregious what we're talking about. It is a racial thing. It is a gender thing. It is what we think a married woman is worth. I, I know in my own life experience, someone told me, and this was in broadcasting, that because of the fact that I was married and I was married to someone who, who was a public person, that he really needed to cut the budget. And so he was going to cut my but my salary by half because I didn't need it because I was married and I was married too. So these are the mm -hmm. kinds of things that absolutely impact those numbers. And I, I don't mean to tell your story for you, but we have to all step up and say when your story is our collective story, because it is. And even if we haven't gotten there yet, and we're sitting back and saying, oh, you know, I did this, I'll be fine here, I did that, we just don't know. And for me, that is one of the biggest takeaways of your book. In fact, even Paul Solomon on the PBS NewsHour, who, who interviewed you, which is how I first came in contact with your work, he ended the segment by saying that he was Paul Solomon, yeah. correspondent, yeah. <laughs> grateful to be working for the PBS NewsHour. Yes, I heard him say that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So he made that point that the earth is round. <laughs> and, and I would say I have had an opportunity to interview and hear from a lot of people, all races and men and women. And this is happening in numbers to white men as well. I've had many men tears streaming down their face. Either they say that to me when they're writing me or I see it with them standing in front of me. And all of the sort of hurt and confusion around, I did what I was supposed to do mm -hmm. and I have landed here. And because we're in a transition, then the solutions that in the past would have worked, you know, you beef up your CV, you, you know, maybe lose a little weight or gain a little weight, you put on a sports jacket, you, you know, go to various networking events, uh, you send out your um, resume, and it's crickets, nothing happens. Uh, I had a woman tell me, she says, I, I can do the technology. I have kept up. I uh, sail through the online, um, uh, you know, application process. Uh, now, typically, they do a phone interview. She says, I do very well on the phone. And she said, but when I come in, I can't help that I look like a middle-aged mom. That's her words. And she said, my interviews last 10 or 15 minutes, and I'm out the door. So there is rampant age discrimination. And the thing is, that's just sort of ludicrous to me. We can be interviewing, a boomer can be interviewing with another boomer, and it's still there. They're pulling up the drawbridge behind them so you can't come across. 
you don't want to catch whatever they have. Whatever it is. <laughs> and so it means that really smart, talented people who are not ready to be put out to pasture are. They are. More on the Janice Adams Show with guest Elizabeth White, author of Faking Normal, after the break. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, and now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Elizabeth White, author of Faking Normal. Elizabeth, on this show, we say that it is a show about race, every race, and courage. How does that apply as you think about it? It takes something to step out here like this. It's embarrassing. I mean, I have a Harvard MBA, for goodness sakes. Uh, in a culture where there are losers and winners, to state publicly that you're struggling, clearly for many people puts you in the loser camp. So you have to get your brain around uh, that you're going to do this. And uh, I remember early on a dear friend of mine, when he went to one of my early websites, he commented, why are they all illustrations and cartoons? You're not up there. And I wasn't. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be known. I was in this space of, I wrote this blog post. I had no idea that it would get the response that it got. I wasn't, uh, wasn't really prepared for that. That was um, unexpected. So in my own circle, there were people who didn't know. I've had close friends say to me, I did not know you were in this situation. Uh, I tell a story in the book of, uh, I call it smalling up, because what I'm really inviting people to consider is, can you have a richly textured life on a more modest income? Um, you know, at this point, at this age and stage, we know that life is more than just sort of, you know, uh, acquisition of things. But how does that actually going to work? So a friend of mine, um, approaching 50, was getting married for the first time. And I wanted to go to her wedding, which was a destination wedding in Savannah. Didn't have the money. Um, went to another faking normal friend who has a jalopy, a car. We weren't even sure it would make it from D.C. to Savannah. But we, she had someone look at it and they assured us that it could. And we didn't stay in the destination hotel. We stayed, I told people, it was above a Motel 6, but it was below a Holiday Inn. It was a hotel in the morning. Breakfast was free. And I met a dear friends of mine in the historic district in Savannah, but I didn't have $50 brunches. I had a $4 cup of coffee and we, you know, sort of parked in a cafe. It was still magical. And I went to the wedding. I have 
clothes from when I was making money. I could shop in my closet. It was fine. And that whole weekend cost me $200. And I estimate, had I flown down, stayed in the destination hotel, kind of rolled the way I was used to rolling, $1,000 easy, maybe more. But what was important to me was being there for my friend. It was still fantastic. It was still magical seeing. It was a good friend of mine who was in town from Ghana also at that wedding. And I call that smalling up. It's really looking at your life and getting clear on what matters now, these things that bring you joy. What has gotten me through this has been a group of friends that I'm calling the resilience circle. And these are people I could tell the truth to. Uh, people have asked me about Elijah. You saw him in the, the, um, the uh, PBS piece. And Elijah is in the world in a very different way with the, you know, never wears a shirt barefoot. What I get from Elijah is I never have to fake normal with Elijah. Elijah doesn't care whether I'm working or not working. He's not going to ask me where I went to school. There are no kind of size you up questions from Elijah. It's really just one human being to the other. Now, Elijah is in the world. Sometimes he goes a little bit off the grid. And I said to him early on, Elijah, do I have to agree with you for us to be friends? He said, of course not. But he has become very dear to me and uh, was a place that I could go because there were a few, certainly my mother, my daughter, a few friends who I could open my kimono to and tell the truth. Who yes. was the first person you told who was not a member of your immediate family? I would say my best friend. I have two very close friends. One is the my I've known long time told her. And then another woman, the best friend I told is actually not in this situation. She's pension, 401k, gonna be fine. The other woman, we walk this together. We borrowed the same $300 I know a dozen times. We used to play this game called Top This. I'd say, girl, you know, my phone's about to be disconnected. And she'd say, my water's going to be turned off. And she would win. And that morbid sounds morbid, but it was just a place where you could tell the truth. Because in the middle of all this, I'm still working different places. I'm still showing up at meetings. I'm still, you know, on the circuit. And on that circuit, there is a way that is acceptable. It's what's expected of you. Slowly, we started pulling back from that. I'd make something at home. Another friend of mine makes something. We get a $7 bottle of wine from Trader Joe's and we'd go to somebody's house. And it you know, depends on what you're into. I'm a, a kind of foodie type person. So figuring out how I can get you know, food that I love is important to me, may not be important to somebody else. Somebody else, it might be the power tools they want. I talk about a good friend of mine who plays the flute. He could care less about cars. He spends nothing on cars. His cars are always a junk heap. But fifteen dollars to $17,000 on a flute, that he's going to spend money on. So when you look out on the rubble, plan A didn't work, and you're looking at what is plan B. This is inviting you to go through a thought process with others and to deal with our denial. You know, I had a roommate at, uh, so, you know, I, do I want a roommate? No, I don't want a roommate. But I had to get a roommate to make the numbers in my household work. 40% of the people who are in tiny houses now are over 50. How do we engage developers to work with us on affordable housing that um, is actually human-centered. And so there's a place um, where I think the sort of sustainability movement 
and this retirement income crisis are going to intersect. In this process of discovery, self-discovery and societal discovery that you've been through, what is the best surprise that you've experienced and also the most painful surprise that you've experienced? The best surprise is I don't miss as much of my old life as I thought I would. I just don't. And your most painful surprise? Painful would be someone I went to that I needed help from, that we have been through death of a parent, you know, medical diagnosis, all kind of relationship issues, job loss. And I got a blank stare. And behind that blank stare was? I'm not going to help you. Mm-hmm. It was stunning. It was stunning. I did a chapter. So it was sort of an unusual chapter to do on borrowing and lending money. And I wrote it because nothing blows a colder wind through a friendship than the request for money. It just sort of is a weird place for the friendship to be. And actually, in this particular case, I was not asking for myself. I was asking for my daughter. Uh, But it meant that you didn't have the money for your daughter. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Out of many things that have happened, that's probably the one that rocked me the most. Elizabeth, would you ever at this point start a business again? Do you do you have the vision that that would make you better off financially at this point? I feel like writing this book, talking about it, having these resilience circles form, being invited to talk is entrepreneurial. Yes, it is. Sometimes the most powerful ideas come from solving our own problems. And I've got this problem. This is a lived experience for me. And I think I bring a unique voice because I have been on both sides of it. I had a friend say to me, I looked without seeing her when she was struggling herself. I was believing her story when if I had paid close attention to the circumstances of her life, I would have seen she can't afford to do that. And I was ashamed and embarrassed. So that raises the issue. For those listening who are not in this position, may or may never be in this position, but want to be the right kind of friend, what is it that we should be looking out for in each other and for each other? We live in a consumer-driven economy, okay? When you start to have tens of millions of people only able to afford the bare necessities, you have 100 Macy's stores start closing. That's not the only reason, but when people start taking their coffee to work in a thermos instead of stopping at whatever cafe they're going to, um, it starts to ripple through now, some people should say, would say, oh, you you know, why are you spending $4 on? But this is what America is. America is a consumer-driven economy. Not all these jobs are coming back. And not all these people are going to recover at the income level that they used to have. But if people are in dire straits, it's going to affect everybody. That's one piece. I think the thing is to look and at the same time see. When there's so many people impacted, there are issues that are systemic. It's not all a personal responsibility issue. In my book, I say, of course, we could have all saved more. People say, don't you think you have saved more? Of course. You know, people will say, "Uh, I don't feel sorry for you. Look at your background. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I don't need pity. I need for us to have this conversation a national conversation about what is our future going to look like for some 80 million people who are, you know, marching into this unknown terrain. We need to be having this conversation because what we've done as a country, we've spent billions of dollars on medical treatments, diagnosis, all of that 
So we've extended the lifespan, but we haven't done the equivalent spending on how, what's the infrastructure that's going to support that in dignity. Today on The Janice Adams Show, we've been speaking with Elizabeth White, author of the book Faking Normal. For more on today's show and to hear Elizabeth read from her book, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. We leave you today on an inspirational note, a knockout performance by two comeback kids, blues singer Alberta Hunter and composer-pianist U.B. Blake, a star that helped make those Roaring Twenties roar, Alberta Hunter faded into obscurity and made a stellar comeback to international acclaim decades later at the age of 82. In 1921, U.B. Blake became the first African-American composer to open a musical on Broadway, The Great Excludingly White Way. In 1946, Blake decided to go to college, NYU, and graduated two and a half years later at age 66. Then, in 1978, at age 95, Eubie Blake returned to Broadway with a hit musical aptly named Eubie. Here's to Elizabeth White and Faking Normal, Keeping Up Hope, and the Comeback Kids of Every Age. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, I'm Janice Adams. Thanks to our guests and to you for joining us today. Your face beams in all my dreams. In spite of all I do, everything. Everything seems to bring memories, memories of you. Oh.